Welcome to the Seventh Art Podcast. My name is Christopher Heron, and I'm the host of the Seventh Art. It's a podcast about cinema, and it's also a video magazine about cinema that you can find at www.theseventhart.org, and that's seventh spelt out. So we're going to talk to Canadian filmmaker Ted Kotcheff, who began his career in British and Canadian television, and has since then worked in a number of genres, including Weekend at Bernie's, but also a little more rarefied comedy, uh, adapting legendary Canadian author Mordecai Richler's work, most notably in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, which we talk about at length in this episode due to its debut of that restoration at the Cannes Film Festival. We also talk about another notable restoration that occurred in his career, which was for the film Wake and Fright, which the Alamo Drafthouse put out in theaters and on home video. Um, the Australian horror film got a lot of attention, and uh, we're happy to have the opportunity to sit down with Ted, who's maybe the funniest of all of the guests we've had. Um, I think this is the most I've laughed in any given interview, and I hope you enjoy it just as much. So I guess the best place to start with the uh, restoration is maybe if you could talk a bit about the production of Duddy Kravitz. The production of it? Yeah. From the very beginning? The very beginning. The glimmer in the father's eye. Well, it's, it all started, you know, I met Mordecai in the south of France. And uh, he was then writing his third novel, Choice of Enemies, um, in uh, a small village up in the Alps called Tourette-sur-Loup. And I knew he was there because uh, I was directing for the CBC at the time. And Nathan Cohen, who was the story editor, said, "Yeah, you ought to meet, you ought to meet uh, Mordecai Richley. You and I, you and, I don't know what he bases it, but he said you, you and he would get along great. You'd be friends. I don't know what he bases prediction <laughs> on, but he was totally accurate. We met, we met, and we liked each other tremendously. Um, he often, I used to say to people." when I was working with him. I like working with Mordecai because I don't have to use words when I speak to him. <laughs> but uh, we found we had many similarities, mm. uh, Mordecai and myself. Uh, we were both basically slum kids. Mm. He came from St. Urban Street in Montreal and I came from Cabbage Town here in Toronto. And, uh, and then we, we were both in the grip of that kind of what I call the Hemingway Fitzgerald romanticism that, that Canadians and Americans had to come to Europe to mm. develop their, if they want to develop their arts, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald mm. did. Which one were you? <laughs> Hemingway, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we were, we were in the grip, as I say, grip of that romanticism as well. As a result, um, we got along famously. As Monica said, you're a horse of the same color <laughs> to me. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I told him that, you know, I wanted to expand. I was directing in television. Mm for the CBC, I wanted to be a, th a theater and a film director. And at the time, there was precious little theater here, and most of it was in the hands of the British. As one of my director friends said, oh, to be in England, now that England's here. <laughs> and we went, and then I also wanted to expand into uh, films, really. Mm -hmm. And um, so I know Norman Jewison and Arthur Hiller, they went to Los Angeles, but I thought I'd go to London because I could work in, in London, had both theater and, and film. So Mordecai said, well, you know, 
why don't you get, we'll share an apartment. I'm living in, up in, um, I have a place in the Swiss cottage, and I'd love to come and join me. And it was a, it was the top floor of a dilapidated Victorian house. Furniture by Charles Dickens, you know the kind of place <laughs> it was. And, uh, and we got along, and I, I directed in British television. Well, he was started to write his next novel, which was The Apprenticeship of Diddy Crockett. So he was writing it. And he and I would talk about our lives, and he put some things that are my own life into the novel. Oh, really? Yes. What's that? Well, do you know the scenes in the... I worked in the Shimada trade on Spadina. Mm. Do you know the scene what, where he's uh, using the pole to turn a belt inside out yes, and using yes. it to masturbate, or pretend to masturbate, right? Well, what he was actually doing, was what I used to do, is you go around all of Spadina mm. in the morning, my job was, I get all the material from all the dresses they were making that day. They would bring it back to, this, to the, uh, where I worked, which was a... We only did belts. So we use that material to make the belts. Well, when they sew it, it's... It's inside out. Hmm. What you want to do is now put it back up that pole to get it outside in, so, <laughs> so you didn't show all this yeah. the sewing. And that's what I, that was my job. So I told him about this, and you put it in the film. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know if it's in the novel, but <laughs> put it in the film. And that whole business of bribing the chef. Hmm. I worked at I worked in Toronto here at the at the uh, old mill. Oh yeah. And uh, and uh, I can't tell you how I did it, but I guess they, they used to serve secondhand food at the old mill to the staff. I don't know where they got their food from. It wasn't the food that was being served to the customers. And we had, for dessert, we, sat, we all sat down, the waiters and the busboys. I was the chief busboy. Mm. I was only 14. We sat down, and uh, for dessert, they always had stale apple and stale cherry turnovers. <laughs> and where they got them from, I don't know, but they were always stale. <laughs> so I, I, dealt, I did the thing with the dessert chef, I won't tell you about. And uh, he started giving me great desserts. And there were some German and French waiters there. They were furious with me. <laughs> what Jew tricks did you use, Kotchev, to get those desserts? <laughs> so Mordecai put, I mean, the, little, the, the details rather yeah. than, you know, because obviously Mordecai wrote the whole book. But um, inevitably, one talks about with a friend, mm, yeah. drinking, carousing <laughs> <laughs> one's life. But anyway, um, anyway, he finished the novel. He wrote it all through, uh, through uh, 1958, uh, and uh, no, I'm talking about. Why do I lose the, lose track of the dates? It was, uh, uh, he wrote it in uh, yeah, it was it was 58. Yeah, it came out in 59. 59, yeah, yeah. I finished it in 59, and he gave it to me to read, hmm. and said, "What do you think of it? Tell me what you think of it." And I read it, and I said, "Not only is this one of the best Canadian novels ever been written, but one day I'm going to go back to Canada and make hmm. a film of it." Of course, we laughed with. <laughs> the absurdity <laughs> of such an idea because because there was no film industry whatsoever mm. and um, however I always had in the back of my head that I was going to make this film because mm. I always thought being a Canadian I was going to do my best work as a Canadian in Canada mm. I mean you can if you're working like I was directing in in Great Britain mm -hmm. yes you bring a certain kind of Martian man from the moon uh, attitude to British values British characteristics they don't see how idiosyncratic they are but if you're an outsider you do mm. but there's only, that only carries you to a certain point, you know. In Duddy Kravitz, no one can tell me about Duddy Kravitz, <laughs> what the, the sets, the costumes, the smells, the feel of it, I've had it all, you know. Mm. And that's, that's the kind of certainty you need when you're working. Mm. You can't be, I mean, what, 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 do, what do British eat with their, you know, you, can't, <laughs> you don't want to be like that. Mm. You need that kind of certitude, uncertainty rather. It was very funny because, you know, the, the book is about a, a Jewish boy and scrambling for his survival. And, uh, when I 
when I, uh, during the 60s, when there was no Canadian film industry, I tried to get American financing for the film. Hmm. And um, there was a man, I did a film in England uh, called uh, uh, Two Gentlemen Sharing. It was about a black man and a white man to come to share an apartment and the kind of racial such problems that were created. And, and uh, it went to the Venice Film Festival, a British entry into the Venice Film Festival. And the man who was distributing in America, a man called Sam Markoff, he, he was a, one of the old, old film uh, uh, guys in Hollywood. He, had, he ran a company called AIP, American mm. International Pictures. And I said, he said, well, Ted, this is a, you did a great job on Two Gentlemen Showing. Have you got anything else you want to make? I said, yeah, I want to make this, this novel. And he read it and said, wow, what a great novel. God, it's wonderful, Ted. Uh, there's only one thing. I said, what's that? He said, uh, I, I don't want Duty being a Jew. I want him to be a Greek. <laughs> a Greek? I said, I said, the film doesn't make sense. I said, the whole point of it is the land that he's after, no one will sell it to a Jew. And he has to get his, this French-Canadian girlfriend to front for him. She thinks he loves her. No, he's using her. You know what I mean? And I said, that's the whole point of the film. I said, Greek. And then, then later, uh, Chris, said, you like this. Another, so I said, no, I'm not changing it. And so he said, well, if you don't change it, I'm not going to finance it. So then another very well, another um, American producer um, gave him the copy of the book. And he loved the book again. He said, oh, I loved it. I love it, Ted. And I said, there's only one thing. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> he said, Mont I don't want to be set at Montreal. Montreal's too parochial. <laughs> well, where are we going to set it? He says, Pittsburgh. <laughs> Pittsburgh? And Pittsburgh's not parochial? <laughs> and I said, look, the whole point is, he's, he's Jewish. He's in a small Jewish enclave surrounded by this monstrous Catholic community. <laughs> that doesn't apply in Pittsburgh. I said, maybe New York, maybe the outside. Mm. But no, it's a very specific situation in what you get in Montreal. Mm. You know? And uh, it, 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 you understand why he does some of the things he does. I mean, remember Mordecai told me that he was... Uh, when he was a kid, French-Canadian kids, eight or nine years old, French-Canadian kids would dance around him saying, you killed Jesus Christ, you killed Jesus Christ. Well, that helps to shape a character, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, anyway, so finally when the CFDC, the Canadian Film Development Corporation, was created, it was possible for me to make that film and not violate the integrity of my best friend's novel. So you entered into production uh, here in Canada on that. What was that experience like? The actual shooting. Well, um, I realized I have to make. I had to get a script first. Mordecai didn't want to do the script mm. because he'd written a novel twelve years previous, and he felt he didn't want to go back to a state of mind that was and creativity that was very different from what he was working on now. And he thought it would interrupt with the novel that he was doing at that time. I forget which one of the novels it was. Mm. So he, he said, "Look, you do the do the." Do the, do the uh, first draft, get the structure of the film right, and then I'll come in and polish up the dialogue. Mm. So I laid out the structure of the, of the, of the film, and of course uh, the writer that I had, was, was working with just couldn't write the same style as necessary that Mordecai did. So Mordecai came in and just redid the whole, every word of the dialogue. But he had all the, stru had all the structure, it was pretty well what you, what you see in the film today. Mm. I mean, I had amazing people mm. worked on the film. Um, the sets and the wardrobe were done by a woman called Ann Pritchard. Mm. She, every, every piece of wardrobe in that picture 
in this video. She did a drawing of it, a color drawing of the word. And so I knew what, exactly what we could discover, what they were going to be wearing. She was amazing. Mm. And I think that this, the sets, the world of uh, post-World War II Montreal, the locations and the way she dressed it was just an amazing. So there was, and, and Francois Protal was the cameraman and he was, he did a fantastic job. And the French, it was a French, primarily a French Canadian crew. Mm. And they were wonderful. Mm. Because you know, inevitably you think, do they have the sufficient experience? Because after I worked with British crews, British, great British crews, you know, great British films uh, from my first three films. But I found there was no diminution of quality. Mm. There was that French Canadian crew, they were marvelous. And they were very enthusiastic. They, what, what, if there was any, if they lacked any uh, moment of experience, they more than made up by their enthusiasm, mm. you know what I mean, to, to, to work, which wasn't necessarily true sometimes with jaded British crews who <laughs> have <laughs> seen everything. <laughs> and uh, one of the most, one of the most um, important, there were two things I had. Uh, well, first of all, was the casting of Duty. Mm. Without Duty, there's no film. Uh, Duty has to be great. And I looked and looked and looked. I went to um, all over Canada. I wanted a Canadian, first of all. I couldn't find anyone I thought could carry the film. Mm. Uh, I went to New York, ditto. And finally, in desperation, I, um, I decided, because the, the producer was getting, John Kemeny was a terrific producer, I was getting nervous. I said, Ted, we start shooting in seven weeks and we haven't got duty. I said, look, John, if we don't get a great duty, I ain't doing the film. I said, because there's no film without duty. If that, if that he's on this for two hours. He's got, <laughs> he's got to engage the audience, make you understand why he's doing these petty immoralities and what, and uh, make you sympathize with him. And I said, that, that's a very special point, you know, without making it obvious what you're doing also. Mm-hmm. So I said, we've got to get a great duty. I had done, a, if you believe this, I did a Western in Israel with Gregory Peck. And the casting director was a wonderful man called um, uh, Lynn Stollmaster. And he's one of the legendary casting directors. I mean, if you look at the films, his 60 or 70 films that he cast, they're mm. all great films. He was a great casting director. I'd, and I'd worked with him on this Western with Gregory Peck. So I phoned him up and said, Lynn, I got no money. I'm making this film for $750,000. I can't pay you. <laughs> your fee. <laughs> but I need you to help me. I'm desperate to get someone to play the part. He said, oh, Ted, don't worry about the money. We'll, we, we'll be working together for the next 30 years. You'll make it up to me some, on some <laughs> other film that's got a bigger budget. <laughs> so I said, okay. He said, send me the script. So I federally expressed the script. Two hours after he got it, he phones me up and says, not Ted, this is the best, this is the best script I've read in five years. But also, there are is an actor who was born to play Duty Kravitz. He said, you wouldn't have heard of him. I said, well, who is it? He said, Richard Dreyfuss. I said, you're right, I've never heard of him. <laughs> well, I, said, I said, well, um, is, um, has he done anything that I could see? And he said, uh, yeah, he was in the film of Dillinger. He's on for four minutes playing Babyface Nelson. <laughs> I said, oh, I'll have a look at it. He said, no, don't look at it. I said, well, why not? He said, well, he kind of overacts in it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lynn, you're recommending somebody for Duddy who overacts? <laughs> he said, Ted, he said, you will, oh dear, I knocked over the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, he said, uh, 
I'm going to bring in the best, 10 best young actors, all budding. They're going to be big stars, all these guys. They're the best young actors in Hollywood. But I'll bet you, you end up with Richard Dreyfuss. <laughs> but you know, you know, Chris, I lived with that, with that film in the back of my head for 12 years. And one of the things I saw, I saw the part of it very clearly. I saw him as a Polish-Russian Jew. Mm. He looked like you. Oh. Dark <laughs> eyes, dark hair. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That Richard Dreyfuss walks in, he's German-Jewish, <laughs> he's got blue eyes. Blue eyes? <laughs> and he had slightly grayish hair, that mm. kind of, you know. I said, oh, God, I, was, I had my hopes for, my hopes for are being dashed. Um, Lynn's, Lynn's flipped his wig. Mm. Okay, I said, okay, Mr. Dreyfus, uh, read this part. And I looked away, and he opened his mouth. Electric. I mean, this was duty. He was duty. And he gave an ama amazing reading when I was there. And so I, that's how I got, we had a film. Mm. Now, with this script in your mind, like you're envisioning for 12 years uh, what it's going to look like, were there any kind of formal devices that you thought would best represent this beyond like the sets or the costumes? Like, it's a very fast paced film. You've got those spinning transitions. Where, at what point did you have the general look of the film? In your head. Well, I, I always felt, Chris, that the, the film should have the manic energy mm. and the fragmented structure mm. of what was going on inside of him. You know, there should be no long, prolonged scenes and it should move fast. Remember, some, someone says, uh, his girlfriend says to him, I was glad you're resting because you're always running, jumping, and scratching. And I said, that's the film. It should run and jump and scratch. Mm. <laughs> and uh, no, no prolonged scenes. There are very few prolonged uh, dialogue scenes. Um, so that was what I really wanted to capture. So it reflected mm. the interior of, of uh, Duty Kravitz, who was always charging and barging into one get-rich scheme after another, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, and, I, and I wanted it to, that the, the structure of the film to reflect his inner life or how he saw the world. Mm. Um, it, was, it was easier to adapt. Mordecai, Mordecai, like a lot of 20th century novels, were heavily influenced by cinema. Mm. Um, and for example, there, in the book of, of one of the make things that made it easier for me when I was adapting, make, doing the first draft of the script, was that there's no inner monologues that you have to dramatize some in, in his book. It's always, everything in the book is action and dialogue. So that made it much easier. Mm -hmm. I, I cut down the dialogue scenes. And I must say, when, when Mordecai rewrote, did, did the final, when he came in and saw Ted, the script, the structure is great, but the dialogue stinks. <laughs> I said, okay, go for it, baby. And then um, and we talked about it all, is that he was ruthless mm. with his material. And his, I mean, there was no, oh, don't touch that dialogue. I want that. Don't touch that scene in the book. Uh, no, he just cut it down to his basic minimums mm. to, keep that, to keep that energy going. And, and the, as I say, the fragmental, fragmented uh, structure of the thing. Mm. And I've never seen a writer do that. They're usually so so careful to main, keep what some of their favorite lines or something like that. No, it was none of that. And what was the touchstone for making the, the bar mitzvah? Like you have the film within the film. That's an interesting aspect. I I'm wondering what filmmakers influenced that and maybe what styles you were going for when you get to play the director in the film, basically. <laughs> well, I just got drunk and I played, no, no. <laughs> no, the, um, well, uh, the, 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 he writes the script in the book pretty, yeah. I, I, I adhered pretty closely to what he wrote there. 
But what we did was, the National Film Board of Canada was enormously helpful. Um, and uh, I said, could you, I want to see all, I want to see all your anthropological films that you've shot in Africa <laughs> or Asia, or, you know what I mean? And when I would see something that I thought was appropriate, like there's a great guy who eats razor blades and broken glass. <laughs> oh, give, give me that, give me that. <laughs> and all, of, all the dancing of the, of the African dancing in it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the material uh, we edited after when we found, we found it, because it's d difficult to uh, get the kind of material. But, but we adhere pretty closely to the spirit of, that, of the uh, bar mitzvah film in the book. Mordecai and I, we used to sing, I said, I got a great idea, Mordecai. Said, What's that? I said, every one of our films, we'll have a film within a film. <laughs> so that, see, Ted Kotcheff, Mordecai Richler film, you get two films for the price of one. <laughs> We've been joking around. But uh, yeah, we had a great, the editor was a great editor I had, Tom Noble, and he, he spent days at the National Film Board going through maternity. He comes and hey, I found some great footage. You know, so <laughs> So we, when we got all the footage together, then we put it. So. Hmm. It's great that it has that lineage with the NFB. And I'm, I'm wondering, the film is so Canadian. How was it received at the time, especially in the States? Was that something that was too different? Or was it something that kind of gave it a flavor? Well, you know, the film was picked up by Paramount. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and the head of Paramount at that time was a man that I came to work with as a producer later on in North Dallas 40, but film I made about American football. But Frankie Blondes was the head of Paramount. He called me down to New York to discuss. He wanted, to, he felt, felt the film was a bit too long. It was two hours and 10 minutes. And he wanted me to cut 10 minutes out of it. So I, we discussed what we might eliminate from it. But finally I said to him, Frank, you know, this is such a quintessentially, you know, Canadian film set in a quintessential America, I mean, a Canadian city, Montreal, after all, with this French Canadian uh, character. What, 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 what attracted you to it? He looked at me. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? The story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, because duty is not, I mean, duty is not uh, East Canadian, but that character of the opportunist, mm -hmm. the guy, what makes Sammy run, he, is, is, that's an, a universal mm -hmm. archetype. The guy who's scrambling up the social ladder. I mean, in the 19th century, so I think Stendhal, Flaubert, they all wrote novels about these kinds of men. And we had worked together already, Mordecai. Um, Mordecai wrote um, the script, the first draft of Room at the Top hmm. for his friend Jack Clayton, who directed it. Then I, I did the sequel to Room yeah. at the Top, Life at the Top. And Mordecai wrote that. And that's about, what is that about? It's about an opportunist who's scrambling up the social ladder. So this, each, this is, as I say, it's an archetypal character. That's why the film is, I think, has got universal appeal. Mm. And how is the reception, maybe now that you've got to see the restoration, it's played in Cannes and in New York, here in Toronto? I must have been a good boy in some previous life. <laughs> 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 because to deserve such a mitzvah, such mm. a blessing, unexpected, unanticipated, and just, I mean, to have your film declared a Cannes classic mm -hmm. 40 years after I made it, I mean, what a, as I say, what a blessing. Mm. And um, I found it very moving. And I want to say, you know, my, only, my only unhappiness was that Mordecai Richler didn't live. He died about 12 years ago. Didn't live to have to celebrate this great, this glorious moment with mm. me. Um, but um, we, you know, we were best friends for 44 years, Mordecai and I. And um, 
However, but still, it was, it was an amazing. And also, I hate to, looks like him, is that uh, two years ago, I did, a, I did a film in Australia called Wake and Fright. That was declared a Cannes classic. To have two films declared Cannes <laughs> classics in two years? I must have been a really good boy. <laughs> a really good boy. <laughs> to deserve such a blessing. Anyway, but, uh, and I was totally un unexpected mm. when it came along. Um, the, the woman, what happened was, um, so I, the Governor General gave me an award declaring Duddy Kravitz a monument of Canadian culture. And then everybody told me, oh, Duddy Kravitz is one of the great Canadian films. But when, two years ago, um, the Directors Guild of Canada gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. And at the end of it, I said rather ironically, everybody thinks, everybody thinks that The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz is a great Canadian film, but try and see it. <laughs> <laughs> Because there was a period of, of the negative produced by Kodak, which all turned pink, yeah. you know? Martin Scorsese spent a lot of time and a lot of money canvassing the big, the big distributors to give money to, because there were some great films made in the 60s and 70s, the negative had turned pink. Mm. So, and that had, that had happened to me. Um, and, um, and Helga, who runs the, uh, the Academy of Cinema, Film and Television, she was passionate about, about the film and passionate. And she, she organized all sorts of the, the Directors Guild, uh, the National Film Board, uh, Telefilm, uh, and Technicolor, who contributed. And uh, they ra he, she raised $175,000, almost the budget of my original <laughs> film, <laughs> to get this print done. And Technicolor were brilliant. What they do now, they have unbelievable technological devices. For example, I, I did I give an example. There was a scene where there was four or five people in the frame, and four of the people were brilliantly lit, but this fifth was in a, in a kind of a deep shadow. So, so I said, that one. So they he went in and he did a he did a, a round the face, just just the face here. Pushed a button, up came the face. <laughs> well, everybody else stayed the same. How did they do that? I don't know. But I spent about four or five days going through the film, you know, adding red adding blue, just to making it, and, the, and not falsifying it anyway, mm -hmm, yeah. but really restoring it the way it was. And uh, I was taken aback. I was, it was brilliant, the, what Technicolor did. The colorist was an amazing man, and uh, the, head of, the head of Technicolor, too, a great, great guy. Um, they, uh, so uh, they produced this, produced this glorious print. <laughs> and what happened was, because of that, I think, that um, that uh, the can heard about the new print color print so they could, could we see it so they saw it and that's, that led to it being declared a can castle obviously <laughs> because there was no print that they could look at and uh, it was a result of that restoration that Helga Stephenson and the rest of those people did that led to it being declared a can classic. Hmm. And Richard Dreyfuss's relationship with the film has changed too because he was a little ho hum about his own performance at the time. And since, but having rewatched it, he went in the Guardian, declared it to be one of his better performances. Yes, um, when we were in Cannes uh, two weeks ago, uh, uh, both of us talked introducing the film. Uh, it was a big, big audience. There's a huge theater there, and uh, I spoke, and then he spoke, and he just said that he now realized that this was the best role of his life. <laughs> I think when he, you know, he did. He was very. Mixed, had a mixed response to the, 
first time back in 1974, mm. when the first film came out. And he looked at it, and I think some of it had to do with the fact that he saw himself. He didn't, didn't like what he saw, I mean, because it, or didn't know how to respond. He's, he was the whole film for two hours, mm. and you see your face 50 feet across, you know? And he was taken aback, taken aback, never, never done a whole film like that, you know? So he was a mixed, a mixed response. He thought he overacted in places, but he mm -hmm. didn't. And, and finally, when, about 10 years ago, when he saw it, he said, you know, Ted, it's the best performance I ever gave, and one of the greatest parts ever offered to me, thank you. <laughs> so, so, so yes, he, I think, I think, you know, it's very interesting, Chris, you know, I've worked with actors. I did my very first film, which Mordecai also wrote, it was called Tiara Tahiti. Can you imagine a director, my, I'm a 30-year-old director, and my first locations is Tahiti. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, had, I had two great British actors, James Mason and John Mills. James Mason never, ever saw himself on the screen. No dailies, no performance, never saw any film he was ever in. He couldn't stand looking at himself. But, you know, I understand that you know, sometimes I don't like... And this interview you're doing now, I don't want to see it. <laughs> Who is that schmuck? Talk, talk. <laughs> it's true. There are other actors like that. Gene Hackman I worked with. Gene never liked looking at himself very much. They just, you know, you're, you're, it's an interesting relationship you have mm. with the image on the screen and yourself. And you're, you're seeing yourself objectively in a way that you never, ever do, mm. you know, for an extended period of time. And it's, sometimes it's difficult to accept what you see. Mm. You don't like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've had, so there are other actors I've had that same reaction. Don't want, <laughs> they don't even want to go yeah. to dailies. Gene Hackman never went to dailies. Never. He just trusted me to, I'd mm. say, it's a great performance, get on the next, you know, but he, he, was, he was unable to assess what he was doing mm. obsessive, uh, objectively. So I'm curious about your relationship with uh, Mordecai Richler for those early films where he didn't write the, the novels, so like Life at the Top or, or Tahiti. Uh, how did you two uh, collaborate in those circumstances? Well, first we were sharing an apartment, so it was easy. <laughs> 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 we couldn't get away from each other. <laughs> no, the uh, people don't know, but when I, in the early days of television, when I started in England in 57, uh, Mordecai, I did two original plays, of, television plays of Mordecai's, mm. and no one's, no one's. I, I don't even know if, if they still exist. I have the scripts, so we, we'd already worked together on on that uh, um, on television, and also we did an adaptation of the Borst Belt Hotel mm. in Duddy Kravitz as a as a as a forty-five minute television play. Hmm. It's experience where he goes there and he loses all his money gambling, you know, and all that's that whole sequence. We, we did that as a kind of a, as a 45-minute uh, television play. So we'd work together, and then he worked on, so we worked on, he worked, even down after the war, we, worked, we did uh, Fun with Dick and Jane with George Siegel and Jane Fonda, yeah. he wrote that. Oh, really? Huh. Yes. So we, as I said to you earlier, the great thing I said to people, the great thing about Mordecai is I don't have to use words when I speak to him. <laughs> <laughs> we saw each other, we saw, we saw each other, we saw the, the, same, the same kind of humor, the same attitude, the same, it was interesting, you know, almost like we were double act. Mm. <laughs> twins, <laughs> twins. <laughs> and um, 
and it was easy to communicate with him and work, work with him, you know. I used to, we used to finish each other's sentences. Hmm. Do you know, the trouble with that scene is, is I know, we go too far. <laughs> you know, he'd say something, and I'd finish his sentence. Hmm. We used to finish each other's sentences. We were so much on the same wavelength all the time. Hmm. It, was a one of, it was a great, ex great experience, Chris, I can tell you, to have that kind of ability to communicate with somebody. A writer that I adored and worshipped hmm. as a writer, and he thought I was a terrific director, so we had a... But uh, one of the things that, Chris, that Mordecai and I always, we made a film about it, Joshua Lynn and I oh, was, yeah. that um, we both were puzzled, bemused. How the hell did a kid from Cabbage Town get the idea to be the great Canadian director? And I thought, how the hell did this kid from St. Urban Street get, get the idea to be a great Canadian novelist? We used to look at each other. How did that, where do we get these dreams from? Where do we get these ambitions from? And I'm actually in Joshua then now it's part of the undercurrent. Mm -hmm. You know, his Alan Arkin plays his gangster father, his mother's a strip teaser. How did he get to be <laughs> <laughs> So that was one of the we never could answer that question. We're, mm. we're, but it's an interesting thing. How the hell did we get these things, these ideas, based on what? Mm. So so that always kept us entertained about each other. <laughs> 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 and, and those early collaborations, they also like span so many genres. That's another interesting aspect about it. Like it seems like you as a director specifically are comfortable changing your style per film. Like Life at the Top is very much a British social realism film. I mean, it's also a sequel. What was that experience like? I'm, you know, everybody's always said to me, you know, Kachev, you're, you're, you're a very strange director. I say, why? Well, you do. You do uh, the first Rambo film, First Blood, <laughs> action, you know, action, and then you do Weekend at Bernie's, a couple of kids are keeping a dead body director, you know, a, a real farce comedy, and then you do Westerns with Gregory Peck, and then you do, I don't know, I, I don't know. You know what I think it comes from? Is that we, when for myself, when I started working at the CBC, I was the youngest director there, I was 24 mm. when I first started directing at, at uh, CBC, we had two drama series. One was called uh, Good, uh, uh, Ch Chase and Sanborn Hour. I'll tell you a funny story about that. And the other one is General Motors Theater. Well, General Motors Theater, I would do an hour play every three weeks. Comedies, dramas, historical, you name it. <laughs> and so I think as a result of that experience, uh, Sidney Lumet, the, the, the American director, he was one of the last guys, he had died, died recently. We used to talk about that period. It was, we all thought that was formative in the sense mm. that we got a chance. Otherwise, who, who's going to give somebody a, 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 an opportunity to direct a Weekend of Bernie's, a comedy, if you've been directing a lot of serious plays? Mm. You know, say, no, no, we need a comedy director. Get, you know. So I think that that's the reason I, was, I, was, I could move easily from one genre to another. Mm. But. Uh, I thought I was going to tell you a funny story about, about uh, I, uh, my first one was Chase and Sanborn Hour. Chase and Sanborn Hour, it was live, you're going over live. Um, and the theme music for it was Charlie Chaplin's Smile. Smile when your heart is breaking, smile when your heart is aching, all that, you know. But of course, no words, the music. And so it was always, we, 10 seconds, Ted, and your stomach starts to churn. Butterflies the size of Pegasus are beating down there. And you realize that's going across the whole country. And then the, the, the assistant, so this guy, the, the guy that write me was a switcher. He did that, he'd switch from one camera to another. We had four cameras. Mm. And uh, 
And then the girl, my assistant, she would say, ready shot 128 on camera two, and I'd take, take it, you know. And anyway, 10, 9, 8, 7, yeah. it's going across the whole country. I'm getting more and more nervous. Ready with the music? Hit the music. Straight up on one. And we did the titles live too. Super, the titles on two. Cut the three. Super, the titles on three. Three, get in the closer. Take it. Take it. All that you're doing, thinking of. Kill him. Kill him for God's sake. Kill him. <laughs> we found the point. Where <laughs> right. Anyway, you, we, you get the idea. You conduct, we conduct the whole, I conduct this whole hour play. Mm. And, then, and then I said, used to say to people, there was no high, no marijuana, no hash, no coke ever gave you a high like doing live television. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't come down for three days. You know, it'd be adrenaline to be up to here from doing the show. And then, uh, well, dissolved, 20 years go by. I'm in a restaurant and I'm having a date with a beautiful woman probably an actress, never mind. And uh, we're looking romantically across the glasses of wine at each other. And my stomach starts to churn. Don't do this to me now. Just calm down. But it said the stomach starts still churning. What do I hear over the loudspeakers in the restaurant? La da 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 To this day, I'm like Pavlov's dog. I hear that music, my stomach starts to churn because I did it for two years. You know what I mean? So, but anyway, that was it was a it was an incredible training. And what we did was when we the Canadian directors went to Great Britain. People forget we we didn't get television here until 1952, and I went to work for them before they went on the air. We used to do practice shows. Uh, but the Brit Brits invented television. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it was invented in '35. They had, the late '30s, they had television in Great Britain. But as a result, but what happened was the directors who came and worked in television drama in Great Britain were theater directors, and a lot of their productions were like stodgy, photo st photograph stage plays with hardly any camera movement. But we, because we were in '52, we invented a whole style of Canadian directors of very cinematic, fluid work. And um, so we all went to Britain. We revolutionized um, uh, television direction in place. There was Sylvia Narazzano, there was, um, went over there, there was Alvin Rakoff, there was myself, Henry Kaplan, there was a whole bunch of Canadian directors who changed the whole face, the style of, of television drama in Great Britain. And I, that, as a result of, because I, I was, used that cin fluid cinematic style, I won the best director thing in 19, about well, four years later, hmm. when, I, when I arrived in England because of, of that. It was a revelation to them that, you know, we, we, that we would almost do it like a film. Hmm. And we pushed, we pushed the boundaries of, of uh, television directing. Yeah. Now, when you have your, your collaboration with Joshua, then now, uh, how have things developed? You have all these skills at that point. How do you approach a project like that, that you know? So, it, sorry, what was the Joshua, question? then and now? Like, yes. You've, you've got all this experience. You're working with Mordecai again, and it's a, it, the subject matter is very reflective of, of a life. Um, how are you approaching that as a director? Well, as I say, um, we were very, Mordecai and I had a very similar sense of humor. You can see this, and we, I don't like humorless people, and I don't like humorless art. <laughs> And, uh, and, and Mordecai had a very specific kind of humor, you know, which uh, I always found interesting. And Joshua, them now, like, 
striptease mother and, and Alan Arkin is the, the gangster. But all, all this, he had always had a he always had a very specific approach, mm. which I found very convenient. It's funny, something just popped into my head. I, when I did, when, just jumping back to Duddy Kravitz for the moment, I was very worried how I would depict Duddy. Here's a guy who lies, cheats, forges checks, cripples his best friend, betrays his, the woman who loves him. How am I going to depict him so that he doesn't, I had to be honest and not falsify or you know make it sentimental or something you know sentimentalize it. No, it's got to be the truth, but the truth is reveals and 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 allows the audience to kind of understand what's driving him. And I was very worried about it. And I, weeks before the thing, I am a big one of my, and Mordecai too. One of my favorite writers of Mordecai and myself is Chekhov. Mm. And uh, yeah, and uh, when I was reading, he wrote a story. I was reading actually his correspondence. He wrote a story called um, "The Horse Thief," hmm. and it's about a horse thief, a guy who steals horses at night. It's a terrific story. And what he did was he oh, he had a, he lived down at Odessa when he was writing his stories, but in Moscow there was this great literary critic Sivorin, and he always sent his material to Zavorin. And um, so he sent him this story about the horse thief. And Zavorin wrote back and said, it's a terrific story, but you take no moral stance against the stealing of horses. And Chekhov wrote back to him and said, if you need me to tell you that stealing horses is wrong, boy, you are in moral trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you see, I'm not interested in, in condemning people. You know, he said, I'm, what I'm interested in is what's going on inside. Mm -hmm the head of that man. How does he see the world? And he then came with this sentence which sent a shiver down my spine and said, you see, I'm not the judge of my characters. I'm their best witness. I said, yes, yes, that's the answer to my treatment of duty. I'm going to be not his judge, but his best witness. And uh, it's been part of my kind of artistic credo all my life mm -hmm. in that treatment, in my depiction. It's carried me through Joshua then and now and the rest of it, you know. Joshua then and now was uh, the closest thing about Morde autobiographical mm -hmm. with Mordecai. It was very, which is both a, a both a, a good thing and a, and a part of a problem. But like, it was really about him and his, his wife, Florence. Um, we, um, Florence was an amazing woman and he was besotted with, Mordecai was besotted with her. And she was on the, she was on the cover of every uh, Canadian magazine. She was a cover girl, she was beautiful. She was a model, a Dior model. And, and uh, we used to attend, we used to attend uh, model, modeling shows. Can you imagine Mordecai and me, see, look, we look like a couple, two rumpled beds. So was, and they had these, <laughs> these shows and all these beautiful models. And his, 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 he was in love with her. He hadn't married yet. Mm -hmm. And we used to go in there. And we tried to, we tried to uh, upset her. So he would say, wow, look at this broad. And we'd say things. And she passed. She was totally <laughs> untroubled. <laughs> she, was, she had a very good sense of humor, too. Obviously, she never could have married Mordecai Richard. He didn't have a good sense of humor. But uh, he was a... He was, uh, it was an extraordinary time, the three of us. Uh, 
any rate, uh, but uh, so that that novel, I mean that film, Joshua, and the novel and the, and the film, had a lot to do with the relationship between Mordecai and his and his wife and his mm. wife, that's in there. So, uh, that, as I say, that that made it easier in one sense and more difficult in another. <laughs> Did Mordecai ever provide maybe background to things that maybe aren't on the script, like for instance the the letter to Uncle? Benji and, and Duty, like, did he ever give you that kind of peek behind the motivations, or did he leave you in the same position as the the? No, he used to leave me alone. Get yeah. on with it. <laughs> um, I mean, if there was some serious artistic problem, of course, yeah. we talked all the time. You know, when we when I when when uh, Frankie Blonde's head of Paramount Films in when I was in New York asked me to cut ten minutes out. Um, there were, there were three things I cut out, um, which I've tried to find, but it's, it's somehow got lost in the shuffle. But um, one of them was the letter, and it's still in there. She says, Uncle Benji died, and he, he said he left his letter for you, and you never explained what's in the letter. <laughs> but there used to be a scene when he was up in the woods with, with um, Yvette, mm. and he's reading this letter. And the substance of the letter was, you know, there's two Duty Kravitzes. There's a monstrous behemoth who quite rightly tries to wrestle the whole world. And then there's a wonderful, thoughtful, intelligent Duty Kravitz. And he said, he says in the letter, Duty, when you're young, you can afford to be three or four different people. But when you become a man, you have to kill those people that you don't want to be. And you, you should, you're, you're a real mensch. And I want you to be a mensch. And that was a, that was what the letter. And I thought, well, that's what the that's what the film's about. You should never never say things about you know. The, and that's why I thought that that's a good cut to cut out what mm -hmm. that. Otherwise, you understand what who he is and what he's at, what, he, what he's about. We cut out also. There was a very funny uh, Joe Silver. Um, yeah. Uh, Joe Silver at the at the bar mitzvah film. I had him get. He gets very drunk. It's hilarious, it, but it, but it prolonged, it prolonged the film. I thought too long, mm. and somehow it lost its impact, because it, it was so funny that somehow the craziness of it, it wasn't so crazy as, as what you get now. Mm. So I, I took that out. The other thing I took out there was at the beginning of the film. He was writing his final exams. At high school. And he's, everybody's writing assiduously and writing down, you know. And he's not, he's not doing anything, keeping his eye on the teacher. And as soon as the teacher who's supervising turns his back, he rolls up his sleeve. He's got dates, saints. He writes all them all down. And then the teacher sees him, comes running down the aisle, see what the, and as he sees, sees the teacher, he licks off all the, all the inks. And, a, and the teacher grabs his arm and looks up. And all he sees is a blue smudge. <laughs> but he knows what's happened. And he looks at Kravitz and he says, you'll go far, clever. You'll go far, Kravitz. You'll go far. <laughs> so, uh, but again, I thought I'd, that that was not to the point. The yeah. point was for the whole thing to possess the land. The, uh, one of the, kind of, the things that you can do, like, for example, Am I going on too long? No. <laughs> uh, the things uh, the things you can do in films 
a novel is a verbal undertaking. A film is a pictorial undertaking. Mm. And um, you don't have to say things. Show, you can show it. Mm. Which is what, but uh, for example, one of the things that I was, I'm very fussy about the locations. After all, that's, what is a film? It's a bunch of locations, interiors, exteriors, with people, with people of your story in front of them. Mm. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to have the lake and uh, look for a lake. I had a wonderful French-Canadian lady, Lise Venn, who was the location manager. She was looking for locations. And she kept showing me lake after lake. I'd say, no, lake after lake, no. I kept seeing. And she told me later on that she estimated she's, without eyes, that she had seen 350 lakes. I, only, I had seen about 100 of them. I kept saying, no, no. And I kept telling her, I said, so finally uh, John Kemeny came to me, Ted, we start shooting in one week. The lake, we gotta find that lake. Like I gotta make a schedule. How am I gonna say schedule? Wait till I know where the lake is in relation to other, other locations. That, and I said, well, I haven't found one yet. Because I said, this lake has to be the lake of lakes. It has to be the most beautiful lake ever. It's gotta be a platonic lake. You understand what I'm saying? He says, Ted, Ted, you're crazy. I said, <laughs> I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> I said, this has got it. The lake is a very important pictorial thing. I said, it's got to stun you with this beauty. Mm. Because I want, when, when Duddy looks at it, it ain't just a crass, acquisitive act. Mm. It's a, also an aesthetic reaction to the <laughs> sheer beauty of it. So you, you understand part of what he does, why he goes to the lakes he does for that lake. Because when you see, you should feel, oh, I want that lake. I want to possess it as mine. <laughs> Just like he, he feels. Mm. And no lake did that. There, there were lakes. Because he kept saying one lake is like another lake. I said, no, one lake is not like another lake. And finally, poor Lisa, Lisa, she was again, she came to me and she said, Ted, I think I found the lake. I said, oh, uh, if this is not it, I'm committing suicide. <laughs> so I said, let's go. So this is like six days now before shooting starts. And I'll be walking exactly like I staged it, across a field, over a barbed wire fence thing, across that. And when you approached it, there was a barrier of trees standing up in front. So you couldn't see the lake. And I went like this. I opened up. Oh, my God. That's it. All right, let's go back. We've got to go back. Go back. Go back to the production office. We've got so much to do now. And, and Lisa said, come back here, you bastard, Kotchev. Give me some satisfaction. I saw 350 lakes, and you say, that's it? <laughs> I said, we haven't got time for satisfaction. We've got too much work to do. <laughs> but it was an amazing lake. The people who owned it were an unusual, eccentric Austrian couple who wanted to, they were against building anything on this lake. It was only 40 miles from Montreal. It was amazing. I thought we were going to have to go like 200 miles north to find a pristine virginal lake that kind of Because all the other lakes had hotels built on them, you know, the cottages, you name it. Um, and um, and he, he was incredibly fussy. One time I took a shot and there was a log, in, a drift log, driftwood log, a big heavy one. I said, let's move this eight feet because so it blocks the shot that I want to make. He kept running up, you moved that log. <laughs> he didn't want, Nothing changed. No, 
He wouldn't allow me to cut a branch off a tree or nothing. <laughs> it was all, it was amazing. But, but then that was the reason it, it looked like it did because there was no building on it. Hmm. And he said, I asked him, what, do you allow people to build cottages? No. I said, why? He said, because they'll have toilets and the, and the, the refuse will go into the lake. I'm not <laughs> going to have my lake, <laughs> lake perverted by <laughs> people's, uh, et cetera. <laughs> but uh, it was a, certainly a, you know, what I feel often in, like, uh, often, often in life, especially when you're making a film, Chris, is that uh, you need luck. Mm. That, and uh, if you don't have that luck, like to find that lake, otherwise, yes, we could have used some other lake, but it wouldn't have had the power of that lake. Mm. And that ha often happens, you know, with, with things, with locations, with casting. Just a little bit of luck you need. Let's talk about We Can Fright for a minute. Just, just talk about We Can Fight. We can it's crazy how, something. well, no one, like the film was basically inaccessible. You couldn't see it. And like the quality is so high that I'm wondering how did it even get to that point where it was lost? Well, it was, it, it, it was, uh, broke my heart. Yeah. Because I thought, I thought that the two best films I've made was We Can Fright and Dirty Kravitz. Mm. And then uh, We Can Fright, they lost the negative. Yeah. And, uh, they searched for it for years, and uh, the editor, who thought the film was a, an Australian masterpiece, and mm. it was a seminal film, because it was the first that started the, the renaissance of Australian films. Because I know, like Fred Skepsi and Bruce Bertsford and other, and uh, Peter Weir, all said to me, you know, that that film inspired them. Because they saw it and they said, boy, you can make, you can make good films in Australia. They <laughs> never believed it. They all wanted to come to, like Canadians, they all, all want to go to Los Angeles and go to Hollywood or to Great Britain, mm. you know. So they looked and looked and looked. And speaking about Pittsburgh, yeah. they, found, they found the negative in Pittsburgh in a, two big boxes. And it said on the, f on the outside in big red letters, to be destroyed. <laughs> for destruction. No, it said for destruction. Had the edit, this guy, my edit, the editor, he searched for two years. Had he arrived one week later, they were going to burn the two boxes. And it was full of everything. Mm, yeah. Pictures, music tracks, soundtracks, <laughs> everything. And they were going to burn it. And now it's, like, now it's on lists of, of great horror films already, like since being re-released. Like this is like in the same breath as Repulsion or something like that. Yes. So you can imagine uh, yeah. how I... I, good thing I never I never knew that that, that it had been lost. Hmm. They, they refrained from telling me because hmm. I knew I'd gone crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I would the little hair that I have left would have gone entire if I had known that film was lost hmm. and it would be never seen again. <laughs> it, it's it was hard to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But you know what, what happened, Chris? Is a, um, his name was Tony Buckley, the editor. When he went to Great Britain, Pinewood Studios, they used the laboratories there, and the guy said, oh, yeah, that, that Australian film. Yeah, yeah, well, we, I don't know, we sent it back to America. We're, we're, so he said, well, where did you send it? Said, I don't know, we just sent it to some place. I don't know, we had an address. I we have got to, no, we have got it. So he was walking out the door, and the guy at Pinewood said, oh, by the way, you, we have nine films here. Do you, know, do you know any of these names? And Tony says, no. He says, yeah, where were we going to burn them? They were going to dump them in the garbage can. Hmm. Nine films. <laughs> and also, you know, um, uh, Pierce Handling, who specializes in, in Canadian films. You know, don't you? Yeah. He specializes, not in Canadian films, sorry, in films that were shot in Toronto. The first two films that were shot in Toronto but by Sidney Fury, 
He's a Canadian director, a good one too. Destroyed, hmm. lost forever. I don't know how they can do that. Yeah. I mean, here's an object which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. It ain't like a 56 cent <laughs> piece yeah. of jewelry that you just throw aside. It's an object of hundreds of thousands of dollars and you just don't, you don't give it house room. Yeah. And, uh, but so I was lucky, um, with, certainly with Wake and Fright, yeah. that uh, they, they found it in this warehouse in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, darling, you got enough footage? Great. That's what I have to think about the camera. They're going to be photographed with <laughs> <laughs> making faces. <laughs> Shooting through the air